Well, this morning our, our scripture reading is from uh, James, this letter that James wrote to the church, chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Hear now this word from God. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, last week, it seems like all we've been doing is getting ready for camp uh, or picking up kids from camp. But last week, we had a, a, a young man who called Charlie to asked to be a counselor at Nova this week, and he didn't know him. He's not from this area, uh, but Charlie said, well, let me uh, check, and I'll get back with you. And so Charlie, being the good youth pastor that he is, he got on Facebook uh, to find, find this guy because and, 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 he didn't know him, and, and then he immediately called me. And so Charlie and I are on the phone and looking at this guy's Facebook page, and, uh, and I'm a little bit appalled at the things that I see on this guy's Facebook page, all of these things. He's, he's living a lifestyle and a life that is not conducive to being a counselor at a church camp. And I won't go into details. But he, and, and I'm like, no, I don't think this is a, a good idea for us, uh, that this wouldn't be best for us to have this person be a counselor at the camp. And unfortunately, though, I see that all the time in people who claim to be Christians. What they say they believe and their actions don't line up. And this is what James is addressing in this short letter that he's written to the church. He's addressing a church that had become satisfied with kind of a, a counterfeit faith, a, a shallow faith, a faith that was more concerned with the outward than the inward transformation of the heart. You know what happens to a church that lives in the shallow end of the pool? A church that doesn't uh, have transformed lives, a, a church that doesn't know how to integrate what they say they believe with the actions they should do? Well, I, I kind of compare that type of church with living with 15 teenagers uh, all in the same room uh, at the same time. You, you never know what they're going to say, how they're going to feel, what they will do, but eventually someone's going to get hurt. That's what happens with a shallow church and a shallow people. James is about faith in action. James is all about faith in action, what I would call true religion. And over the next month, we're going to look at this letter that James wrote and his message of faith in action. And although it was written almost 2,000 years ago, it is very applicable to our world today. It's a commentary on the times we live in as Christians. See, our nation is not opposed to religion and religious practices, but only up to a point. And this is kind of what James is addressing. It's acceptable to be a, a person of faith, but only if it doesn't get in the way of the rest of our world. Prayer is okay, but not in our schools. Uh, going to church is fine, but it's more important to be at a soccer tournament or a basketball game or baseball game. 
Wearing a t-shirt proclaiming our trust in God is fine while giving very little of our money to the church or to the poor is acceptable. Our profession of faith and our practice of faith too often do not line up. And this is what James is addressing. This is the church that James is writing to. It was applicable then and to today as well. And when we look at the book of James, we really don't know for sure who actually wrote this letter. Uh, the, two, the New Testament has up to six people named James. And I just wish that they would have just added a last name, not just said James, you know, and so we could know which James are we talking about here. Because we have two different disciples that are named James, and Jesus' half-brother is named James, along with others that were named James. So we don't know for sure who wrote James. And even the letter itself, it opens with a statement which doesn't give us a lot of help either. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So which James are we talking about? Not real sure. But I believe that the evidence points to Jesus' half-brother, James. And I won't go into all the, the different evidence. We don't have time to look at that. You can look it up on your your own. But, but James was the leader of the early church. We do know that. And, and uh, we're not sure when James was convinced of who Jesus was. It, it'd be hard for a half-brother to look at his brother and say, you're the Messiah, wouldn't it? But we do know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, that James actually saw the resurrected Jesus. And they had a conversation together. So here, uh, James was the early leader of the church. He believed in uh, Jesus as the Messiah, as the resurrected Christ. So we believe the letter was written somewhere between the late 40s and when James was martyred in 62 A.D. So you kind of have the time frame and, and who uh, we think wrote it. Uh, I believe it was uh, Jesus' half-brother, James. Uh, and I also believe James is primarily writing to a Jewish Christian audience. You have to understand the early church, 40s to 60s, that early group was primarily Jewish Jewish Christians. It was Paul that really, and, and Peter partially, but Paul really began to expand that mission out beyond the Jewish faith into the Gentiles, you and I. But uh, the reason I believe that uh, James was addressing a Jewish audience was the, the, because of the way that he writes. Uh, he assumes that the readers know the Old Testament and the stories of the Old Testament. Uh, he assumes that people know who Jesus is and what he said and what he did. And I don't know if you know this or not, but, but this little letter of James is one of the most controversial books of the New Testament. Behind Revelation, which is controversial in itself if you try to read it, but James is one of the most controversial books in the New Testament. And, and part of it is because people had, uh, couldn't understand the way James was writing. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he didn't like the book of James. He wished it wasn't in our, in our Bible if you can imagine that. And uh, many theolo theologians over the years, they've, they've looked at uh, James, and some have thought that James taught a different theology than what Paul taught, where Paul is focusing on grace, and James uh, is focusing on uh, works. And many have looked at James and said, all he's done is just taken like these proverbs, these sayings, and just kind of thrown them on a piece of paper in and, and no real order, and just uh, given it to the church. Uh, but I disagree, and uh, I believe 
And here's why I, I disagree. Because I believe that James is writing to a real church with real issues. And he's addressing those issues that they're having. Uh, they're addressing, he's addressing issues that the early church is having. Issues of poverty. Issues, real issues of living their faith in the daily grind of the world and understanding what true religion really is. I, and I don't believe that uh, James contradicts the Apostle Paul. They're just, I believe they're actually in agreement. They just come at it from a different angle. They, they just look at it from a different lens or different perspective. They're coming to the same point, but they look at it differently. And any of you who are married, you might understand this because sometimes you and your spouse might be agreeing on something but saying it so differently that you're arguing? Only me? Okay, thank you. Because uh, that's happened. But to me, and we finally realized, oh, we're saying the same thing. We're just coming at a different angle. And, and this is the way James is writing. Uh, James writes in a way that makes you assume that what is left unsaid is understood. And again, going back to my wife and I, you know, my wife and I, we have history. We have about 25 years of history together. So that when we have conversations or an argument or, or we're talking about something, we don't always have to go back and reread our marriage vows and try to convince the other of the promises we made. We already have that foundation. And so that's kind of, we don't have to talk about that because it's already there. We, we know that. And it's the same with those who read James. Because James only mentions Jesus' name twice. But it is assumed that the reader understands everything that Jesus said and what he did. James doesn't dive into the basics of our theology, of grace, and the truth of resurrection, and salvation by faith. See, because they're not struggling with those issues. They know those things. That's not their issue that they're having a hard time with. His readers know that James doesn't have to explain the Old Testament examples because he, he knows that they know these stories. And when he mentions a name uh, or situation, that they'll automatically know what he's talking about. So as James writes, he goes to the heart of the matter. He doesn't waste time. He goes to the issues that the early church is facing, issues that are threatening to tear apart their unity, issues that are dealing with true religion. So in chapter 1, James dives first into the deep end of the pool as he addresses the challenges and trials of life that we all face. And he, help, and he helps to seek us uh, to look at these in a, in a different light. And, and what does he say about it? He says this in verse 2. He says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Wow, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's pretty tough. And again, I love the way James writes. Verse 1, hello, it's James. Greetings. Verse 2, consider it joy when you face trials. He gets to the point, doesn't he? He doesn't mess around. He doesn't just give any fluff or say, oh, I know you're having a hard time. And he doesn't go with the encouragement. He just says, consider it joy. And you have to ask yourself, what? Why? Why would I consider it joy? Why in the world would we consider it joy when we face trials? And temptations. There's a good reason, but it requires us looking beyond ourselves to what the purpose of true religion really is. So verse 3, he goes on and he says, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let 
endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. The testing of our faith produces endurance. And that makes us mature and complete, lacking nothing. The testing of our faith produces endurance. We are to realize that in times of trial, our faith is being developed. And that should help us also to realize that God can use anything to accomplish His purposes, even terrible things. He doesn't cause all those terrible things to happen, but He can use terrible things to strengthen our faith. This is part of our growth as disciples, to understand what true religion really is. Trials are an opportunity to develop our character. They are an opportunity for us to be made whole and complete. Does that make sense? Trials in themselves, they're not good. But if we look at it differently, if we understand that that this trial is going to make us complete, then we can look at it with a different perspective, can't we? We can actually look at it with joy, knowing that I'm going to go through this and I can be made complete. I can be made whole. On the other side of it, I will be strong. I will be more like Christ by going through this. That's a different perspective. That's a different attitude, isn't it? I, I compare it. You know, Paul uses the, the idea of someone running a race or the in, endurance. And, and this morning I, I picked out Joe Lombard, who's our uh, girls' basketball coach. And so, you know, sometimes when those girls are running laps, they're not having fun, are they? It's a trial. It is a struggle. Now, some of those girls I know like to run, which is weird in itself. But because uh, I think running is wrong in general. You should not run. It just should not be a thing ever unless someone's chasing you, I guess. But, uh, but, but, you know, why do they do that? Why do they put their body through that? Why do they practice? Why do they go through all that? Because they know on the other side they have the goal of winning. For trials to make any sense for us, we have to know what our purpose is. We talked about this last couple of weeks. We live for the kingdom. If the kingdom of God is our purpose, then when we, go, when we have that as our focus, when we go through those trials and temptations, we know that they're going to help us be more effective for the kingdom, then we will consider it joy. But if it's not about the kingdom, there is no joy. And, and then James, and, and it's still hard to understand, isn't it? But James goes on, and I like what he says. It says, if you can't understand this, then ask God for wisdom. Because God is the one who will give you wisdom to help you through these times. Plead with God for understanding and wisdom to guide you through life. He is, and he is pleading with us, James is, to stand strong in the faith and to trust in God. And he warns of a problem that many of us face. And that's double-mindedness. In verse 6 through 8, he says this, But ask in faith. Ask for wisdom and faith, never doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Boy, that's a tough verse, isn't it? The double-minded person wants God, yet not completely. See, that, this is what James is writing. About He says the double-minded person, he, he wants God, but not completely. See, the double-minded person wants the joy of salvation, but doesn't want to go where God sends him. I'll take the salvation, God, but, but I really don't want to go where you send me. 
I really don't want to live my life the way you want me to live. I'll take part of that. I'll take control of that part. You save me. I'll live how I want to live. Let's make that deal, God. That's a double-minded person. This person is wishy-washy, unpredictable when tough times come. And, and we see that even in Scripture in the Old Testament when the kings of Israel and Judah, they, they had a problem with this. And this was the problem. You know, the leader was supposed to be faithful to God, and, and the leader wasn't faithful to God, and so the whole nation was double-minded. And we see that when, when, when the nation would get in, problem, in, in a bad way, when they had struggles, what would they do? They would plead to God, Oh God, please help us. We need your help. But at the same time that they're pleading to God for help, what were they doing? They were making side deals with pagan nations and pagan kings, saying, hey, uh, will you protect us as well? Will you, we'll, we'll do what you want. We'll even take your gods, but just protect us. So here, they're double-minded. And, and this, is what, uh, this is what we read in, in 2 Chronicles. It says this, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a true heart. And that should be Second Chronicles. When he's talking about the king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a true heart. I would hate for that to be said about me. It wasn't a wholehearted devotion. James's passion is that we would be people with true hearts. That understand what true religion really is. We wouldn't be double-minded, but wholly committed. Now understand this. James isn't saying that if you have doubts, you're double-minded. Don't, don't think that. Because we all have doubts, don't we? All of us have doubts at times. Absolutely. All humanity has doubts. No, what James is talking about is the doubt we have when we are not fully committed to God and His way of doing things. That's what James is talking about. Those doubts. See, James is talking to those people that are hedging their bets, that say, oh, I'll live for the kingdom sometimes. So what is true religion? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because at the end of this chapter, James gets to his thesis, uh, the, the hinge on which the whole book of James hinges. And I don't want you to miss this. This is the, the critical piece. And it's James 1, 19 through 27. Part of it we read earlier. But, but I'm going to read this whole passage here. Uh, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives. And humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts. For it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. That's a lot to digest. But here's the point. 
for God's word to be the life-giving word that it was meant to be, you have to obey it. If you do not obey God's word, it is not life-giving. It is death. For God's word to be life-giving, for God's word to give you joy in the midst of trials, you must obey it. If not, there ain't no joy. There ain't no life. We must both hear it and do it. It must be faith in action. This is what true religion is. You're fooling yourself if you think all you have to do is listen to it on Sunday morning and then go and live however you want to the rest of the week. It doesn't work that way. I think of those commercials, I can't even remember what they are, on TV and the the ladies. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it's supposed to work. Your life will be miserable, shallow, full of pain that doesn't produce endurance, lacking purpose, if that's the way you live. The practice of true religion is the key to transforming our lives, our communities, our churches, our world. The way to have joy in life is only found in this type of faith. True religion is obedience to God. The type of religion that James finds acceptable is, is this right here. Pure and genuine religion, true religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. It involves two aspects, a horizontal aspect and a vertical aspect. They're both important. The horizontal, taking care of widows and orphans. When you hear in Scripture the term widows, orphans, aliens, and strangers, you better perk up because God is about to move if you don't move and not in a good way. Pure religion is this, taking care of those who cannot take care of themselves, taking care of those who are the least, the last, the lost, taking care of those who don't have a voice, who don't have justice. What did we say last week? We are supposed to, men, do justice. We are to be the voice for those people. We are to be the people that help lift them up. That is part of true religion. Go back to the verse. To take care of those who can't take care of themselves. And then the second part, though, is the vertical. Refusing to let the world corrupt you. Being pure before God. That's, that's holiness. Both are critical. You can't have one without the other. And, and it's fascinating to me because both, they kind of stretch you in how you deal with the world. Because the horizontal requires you to be involved in the world, doesn't it? The vertical requires you to separate yourself from the world. And so there's this balance that takes place between being in the world but not of the world. That's hard, isn't it? That's a hard thing to balance. How how do we figure that out? How do we keep that balance? Well, let me tell you how. That's the process of discipleship and spiritual formation that you're supposed to be going through every day. That's that process that we're always asking ourselves, what is our next step in growing closer to God, that is that process of coming together in small groups of people, whether it's a Sunday school or a small group, that is that process of living life together so that we get this right and we get this right. Roman's our director of discipleship and spiritual formation. If you have questions about that process, you can ask him. He can help you out. He can help you take that next step. 
So what is your next step? I don't know. For some of you, that next step is this. I should be looking out and doing justice for those who don't have a voice. I need to be taking that step, helping those in the world that, that are lost. That might be your next step. For others of you, that next step might be this, the vertical I need to get myself right before God. I need to make my life holy. I need to, to bow before him and make sure I'm not being corrupted by the world. Let me give you one next step for all of you this week. Read the book of James. Five chapters won't take you 20 minutes. Read it all, all, all the way through. And then over the next month, continue to do that and read each chapter. This week was chapter one. Next week we'll be doing chapter... Y'all are smart. <laughs> Week after that, chapter? And then? Yeah. Smart group. What is your next step? James is about faith and action. Hearing and doing. Let us pray.